Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. My name is Rose, and this week, the Particle Podcast is off to the zoo. I sat down with Holly Thompson, zoology supervisor for the primates, and Given Geek. We had a chat about primate matchmaking, childhood dreams, and living in the trees. We recorded this episode live at the zoo, basically like a live recording for the Gibbons themselves looking down at us from above. I hope you enjoy it just as much as they did. Welcome to the podcast, Holly. Thank you for having me along. What do you actually do? So here at the zoo, I'm the primate supervisor. So that means I have the best of both worlds. Uh, being the team leader of a whole heap of amazing staff as well as the animals. So I started off as a zookeeper and then had the opportunity to start supervising. That's awesome. How long have you worked at the zoo? I've been at the zoo for 18 years. Wow. Does it feel like it's been a long time or does it feel like it's flown by? Totally flown by. It was just always a career aspiration of mine. Yeah. And so now I just continue to pinch myself that I actually got here. Oh, that's so good. How do you actually become a zookeeper? So perseverance (laughs) is definitely one aspect. Um, It can be a highly competitive field to get into. However, I think if you've got what it takes and you start off Um, from an early age which I was really fortunate to know what I wanted to do from an early age Mm. so I could start um, doing some work experience early on and that was in the form of um, the previous CALM so Department of Parks and Wildlife doing fauna trapping um, when I was 14 and then at 15 I did some work experience at Murdoch um, Equine Veterinary Hospital which was really interesting Um, I think I'm fortunate my my father's a professor of parasitology. Oh, wow. Um, so he's a little smarty pants. <laughs> and so I was really fortunate to kind of already be in the field working with animals, um, helping him from a young age with dogs and even cows, getting fecal and blood samples. And so, yeah, from the age of 14, I knew I wanted to be a zookeeper. Wow. And so you would have had to go to uni? I did go to uni. So I studied conservation and wildlife biology at Murdoch Uni, which was a really fantastic course. And also one of the certificates that um, we generally need here at the zoo, especially to go up the levels, is the zookeeping certificate, which Mm. we actually teach here at the zoo as well. Uh, And that's a great certificate to get started in the field. Yeah. And then it's just years of slogging away at it. Exactly. It really is. And, And like I said, with perseverance, you just... Make yourself present. Um, and I probably had a little touch of annoyance in there. When I, <laughs> like, hello, it's me again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did work experience and just really applied myself. And six months later, I got a contract. And then, oh, that's so yeah, good. it started from there. And been here ever since. I have. Oh. I was definitely told I had no chance when I was 16. Wow. I, you know how you get those career advisors that pop into your, into your school. Um, and they said, no, you'll need to get overseas experience. So I thought, all right, well, I'll do that. So I'd already got my contract at the zoo, but I went to Switzerland and did work experience at Zurich Zoo. Oh. Um, so I definitely would just say to anyone that's out there that's told, yeah, that they can't do something to, yeah, throw it back in people's faces that you yeah. can. Yeah. <laughs> what was the zoo like over there? Is it different to here? It's, um, it's 
still nice in what I'd more call a boutique zoo. Mm. So nice, small size, but now they've really started expanding. It's pretty amazing. They've got a masala rainforest or a Madagascan rainforest that's a kilometre square. Whoa. And when I did work experience, I um, just assisted in their quarantine department. And that was with um, bats and lemurs and chameleons, tomato frogs. So this masala rainforest has all of that in there. So sometimes you may go in there and not see a chameleon. And other times when I was there a couple of years ago, um, yeah, you see all kinds of amphibians and wow. reptiles and birds. It's an amazing oh, how experience. Cool. Yeah, they've got a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be real. That'll help. Yes, that helps. Do you remember when you're, because you obviously wanted to be a zookeeper ever since you were a little kid, but do you remember when you had really made the decision, the moment of like kind of inspiration? I do, and I was actually here at Perth Zoo. Oh, how cool. And so I remember it really, really clearly, and it's when we had peacocks here as well, and the little Indian palm squirrels running around, uh, and I was actually at the orangutans, so... Um, We've now got the beautiful boardwalk that you can view the orangutans from. But then um, it was at some of the windows of the orangutans and just watching them and seeing how similar they were to many of our behaviours. Oh, yeah. And just thinking, wow, these guys are just so crazy intelligent and I want to find out more about them. So that's kind of where it started. I definitely was one of those kids that start thinking maybe into the vet field but that stopped pretty early on for me um I have a great deal of respect for veterinarians uh but yeah I definitely realized then that the zookeeping industry and conservation was an area that I wanted to get into how did you end up working with gibbons so gibbons and that's something interesting actually I started my job and even though I'd kind of gotten a little bit more inspired by orangutans then as soon as I got that experience with gibbons no offence to our orange cousins, but everything <laughs> changed. So, oh, I think, and just we've got Owa, um, a little Jarvan Gibbon watching us at the He's moment. So they are so ridiculously loving. So I think what's so beautiful about them is that they do live in these beautiful family units. Oh so goodness. we're also just watching Sunda with her little baby oh. boy, Asta, who was born in April. They're, they've got these beautiful family units and they just have such a connection with, between them and then with their offspring. Um, and just their abilities and their charisma. I just, yeah, I just totally got obsessed and I still am 18 years later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can see why. I can't take my eyes off them. They're so sweet. They are extremely cute. They're gregarious and, oh, and just the connections you can make with them and not only in a, in a zoo environment, but also I've seen a few species now in the wild and even from what you get from watching them out in the wild is just beautiful they're so inquisitive yeah okay mm. what's like the most human thing you've ever seen one do so most human thing that i've probably seen a gibbon is probably as mothers i yeah. think yeah so the way that they are and so protective but also the even the way that they discipline so yeah, okay. you know we may have some mums and dads out there that do time out or something like that <laughs> <laughs> but our gibbons definitely uh do the same kind of skill and learning um, that humans do. Yeah. Uh, so these little babies <laughs> learn everything from their mums, um, and so and and their their fathers and their offspring, uh, and they're with their mums for oh, up to seven or more years. And our orangutans wow. are some of the females up to about thirteen years. That's a long time. It is a super long time. Like the similarities between us are startling. Yeah. 
You can see even the way that she holds him. Yeah. He's so cute. Wouldn't it be nice if human babies just clung on to you yeah. like that? Yeah, <laughs> be a bit more convenient. <laughs> What's a part of your job that surprised you? I think something that surprised me was just, I knew I'd love it, but just how it became my life and my identity. So not, not in a bad way, but just it, I lived and I breathed it and I continue mm. to. I still, I still have work-life balance, I'm crazy. <laughs> uh, but just how it became a family. So those animals become a part of your family. You know, we, we totally respect them and their wild habits. And, um, and I think a misconception can be of our job that we go in and we cuddle all of our animals, uh, the animals here, and we definitely don't. Mm. Uh, but just how, yeah, they became part of the family and then the zoo, greater zoo family, just the connections I've had and the friends you make is just really beautiful. But then I think also for me, I already knew that I wanted to get into conservation, but just then that, I feel that you have to be authentic in this field. So I had this amazing job here at Perth Zoo, but I feel like you have to give back just as much to these beautiful animals that we work with here in their wild habitats. So I think that's something that definitely I wasn't expecting that I'd get as into as I did. Yeah. and. I mean, the zoo is pretty big and like you care for all of these animals. Is it hard physical work? Is it exhausting? It, it is. Yeah, it really, it really is. And for me, I think some of the most exhausting times came from actually when we were hand raising mm. um, and hand raising some of these little gibbons. And that's definitely something that we never start off wanting to do when we're breeding these animals but sometimes it's out of our control so we've little Owa who's watching us from above and is back in with a totally normal family unit um his mother just didn't produce enough milk yeah okay and so even if she had brought Owa over for a little bit of a bottle she can't do that at night mm. and, and so you're asking a lot of them so I think that that component is pretty special but it can be really labour intensive. And then you've obviously just got, and another misconception is, oh my gosh, it is heavy work. Yeah. You are mulching, raking, picking up a lot of different poos. <laughs> <laughs> we know a lot about poo. Um, a lot of food preparation, a lot of enrichment. But then I think, and I kind of call it modern zookeeping now, um, is that our role has changed so much. So yes, it's got the labour intensive, but also the research um, the contacting other institutions, we're constantly trying to improve. So mm. it's also physically as well as, I guess, mentally exhausting as well because we're really trying to take everything to that next level. What does it mean to be a species management coordinator? So this is, it's like an RSVP for these animals. So we want to make sure that genetically um, we're doing the right thing by them in our region. Uh, and so it's pretty much matchmaking. Oh, so matchmaking like and making sure. <laughs> yeah. So for the species that we're in front of at the moment, the Javan gibbon or the silvery gibbon, they're from Java, Indonesia. I actually um, manage the program for these guys. And what's pretty special is that it's an international program. Oh, wow. So that means that I'm matchmaking gibbons from all around the world um which is pretty damn special yeah there's, there's only 14 zoos outside of indonesia that this species is at and only 73 javan gibbons surviving as part of what we call that stud book yeah so okay. it's where we keep all of their details um their their sex age um who their mums and dads are and then we can match everything together and make sure we're making really nice couples around the world for this species but to be able to manage that 
um, so closely and um, we know, I know all of them. I know all of them by name. And so I'll contact someone in, in the UK and I can ask, you know, how's... Um, Saraswati, uh, <laughs> that's one of our breeding females over there, and the same in America. And you, the the partnerships that you then build when you're doing these species management programs is so so cool. Um, you then know all these people from around the world. You have a shared passion, um, and it's not just me calling all the matchmaking shots. <laughs> you're doing in that in collaboration, okay. and it's always with welfare. Um, is paramount and number one as well. So it's yeah. not just, okay, these two gibbons look like a genetic match. It's also looking into are they suited well behaviourally? What are their backgrounds? Um, so that's really awesome. And I also do it for the white-cheeked gibbon. Okay. So that's another gibbon that we have here at the zoo uh, and that's mainly within Australasia. But I'll still contact our um, international counterparts. So I'm just getting a young lady gibbon from France at the moment. Um, and she come, come into here? the region? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So she'll probably um, be going to a zoo over east mm-hmm. uh, and meeting one of our boys over there that we've got here. And so it's always we're always wanting to be ahead of the game. So yeah. before those animals get to um, dispersal age, that's when it's time to leave their family. We always will try and be matchmaking so that they've got a lovely mate to go for. Oh, it's so crazy. It's really cool. It's like blind dates for Gibbons. totally blind dates. <laughs> and then you've got to do the introduction and hope that they like each other. Um, and more often than, than not, they do, which is fabulous. Uh, and then it's just the bonding process. And I think when you when you do matchmake animals, it doesn't happen overnight. So, you no, know, they may not want to breed for a good few years or they yeah, could be okay. pretty young. Um, and also breeding isn't always the necessarily the outcome that we're after either. It can be companionship, um, which is perfectly fine as well. That's adorable. It is really cute. So do Gibbons have long-term partners? Are they quite couply animals? Oh, yes. Oh. So, um, so... Uh, Sunda and Owa here, their mother passed away a couple of years ago at a, a nice old age. Uh, but she was with her partner for over two decades and they produced 10 offspring together that are distributed all around the world. That's a success. So that's a total success. And now young Sunda here with her little baby, um, who's just playing on the tree in front yeah. of us. Uh, she's Her and Omar are quite newly together. Um, but she is Omar's second mate. So Omar's quite a bit older than her. Yeah, okay. And his mate, again, died at a really nice old age. And now he came to Australia all the way from Belfast. <laughs> so he's got a little bit of an accent. Um, so they just had to kind of work that out together. And, uh, yeah, now they've he's got that new partnership. So that's really beautiful because his mate had passed away and he was still up to mingle. Um, he could meet a nice young mate and they produced a little baby together. Yeah, so cute, I can see. (laughs) Why should people care about careful zoo management? So you should really care about careful zoo management because it's important to do it right. So we're custodians of these animals and, oh, we may actually, sorry, we're just going to, I think, get a little given calling, which is pretty awesome. Um, So we're custodians of these animals and we need to showcase that we're doing the right thing for them from a welfare perspective, um, also managing um, them in line with species so they can do their species-specific behaviours. So, for example, with the gibbons here, this is on a beautiful island exhibit where they've got live trees, they've got plenty of ropes so that they can have different canopy levels to swing mm. on. Um, and then what's also important for us here at Perth Zoo, because we are 
a leader in our field is to assist um, other zoos with how they can follow suit. Okay. So we, I, I personally consult with a lot of zoos in Asia, throughout Asia, um, and a lot of rescue centres, and it's utilising our skills that we've learnt here at such an amazing zoo to be able to give back to, to others. So if that's exhibit design, dietary management, health management, our vets are really great with making contact, um, especially to those rescue centres that have all kinds of animals come in from the illegal pet trade. Uh, so yeah, I think it's really, really important. And like I said before, when it comes to conservation, we need to be authentic. Mm. So if we're going to be exhibiting these animals and showcasing them because there's such They've all got such great messages behind them. We need to be doing the right thing. So, yeah, and that's why I'm really proud to work at Perth Zoo because we just are continuing to improve. And like all of us in all of our jobs, there's always room to improve. And over the last 18 years, we just continue to go from strength to strength, which is really nice. Yeah. How is a space like this designed? How are the like the, have the mini little habitats created? Who gets to do that and how, what do they consider? So what we'd consider here is um, what the individual animal requires. We also... <laughs> she sounds absolutely beautiful. So I may actually just take a minute just to yeah. explain the call that's happening here because it's Please quite do. different for this species. Is So the female will call, so that's why young Sunda is calling here. And then generally the males... So her mate um, and her brother Oa will then just look around the territory and defend it. They don't know that they're the only Javan Gibbons here in Perth, let alone oh. WA. Um, so they will just make sure that everything's nice and safe for them. Oh. They're also just warming up their morning vocal cords to start the day. <laughs> now we've got some black and white rough lemurs going off behind us. This is just the best time to be here at the zoo. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, when it comes to the exhibits, we've also got specifications and guidelines. So be pretty similar to when you're, uh, when you're building your house. So you have rules that you need to go by, you have um, engineering specifications. So that's all, we, we have all the kind of nitty gritty boring stuff. <laughs> um, but then we also have to go species specific and also safety and welfare. Mm. So making sure that um, their, their habitats, um, they can't get injured, um, also they can't escape from. Yeah. <laughs> and um, making sure that they're from a health and perspective they're fine. That can be down to the, the tree species that are in there, that none of them are toxic. Um, making sure that there's kind of no sharp edges on anything. Uh, making sure that they've got heating and cooling. Uh, that they've got adequate areas to sleep, um, seek shelter. Uh, even retic and misting systems um, in the heat of what we get to here in Australia. Uh, and yeah, everything. So even with our meshed exhibits, making sure that they can't hurt their arms in the mm. mesh. So yeah, there's lots of specifications and um, guidelines that we go through with our design. When it comes to something like our new, um, the lion exhibit area, for that habitat, that's totally different again to what you'd see for a gibbon or a penguin or something like that. So you have, yeah, like I've said, engineers um, and you'd have a massive team of people going through the design and scope for that enclosure. And that's why it can take a while. Yeah. Um, we often say here in the zoo that planning for something like an exhibit like that's like planning for a wedding. <laughs> there's a lot involved yeah. um, and there's a lot of people involved. So the amount of uh, kind of specialist people that you have um, on a committee for an exhibit design is pretty intense. 
even just considering, yeah, I'm assuming, I mean, I don't know, but is the way that you make sure the gibbons don't escape, is that because of the distance between the next tree? Yeah, so we watch for the distance between the trees. Um, here where we're sitting, we've got this beautiful new uh, immersive wetland area. Mm. So even from the trees um, next to us to where we've got some beams, um, that's so that they can't because they're such clever jumpers and yeah. swingers. <laughs> so we know all of the um, distances for them and that's something that we do collaborate on. So I'm actually just assisting a, um, a rescue centre in Vietnam with all of these kinds of things as mm. well. So so that then they can also, from a, from a given escape side of things, <laughs> uh, know um, what kind of safe distances are for these guys. Have you ever seen an animal escape? Um, I've seen them try, yeah. like all are above us, so cheeky. Um, but then, though, they just get too scared. Yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, fair. That's what's always, yeah, quite funny. He's like, oh, my God, I love my home. I don't want to go out of here. Um, he really is hanging on there. He's, oh. like, hanging from a branch just, just yep. so high up. So, so funny. Uh, something that um, was quite funny once at the beginning of my career is um, when we had more Indian palm squirrels running around, we've got a code system, and so that's if an animal gets out. And these palm squirrels obviously just run around the zoo freely. And when um, a lovely friend of mine started at the zoo, he called a code two, so that's a non-dangerous animal's out, and it was one of the palm squirrels <laughs> that just run around everywhere. So, of course, we never li let him live that down. That was quite hilarious. Oh, no. <laughs> What's a day in the life like for you? So for me, it's walking my dog in the morning. Great. <laughs> and then coming into this beautiful place. Uh, so for me as a supervisor, we have a team meeting. So in the mornings we all catch up and we go through what we've got on for the day. And so that will be if we've got any specific health checks for the animals, um, if there's any loud machinery works, because we need to be aware of those so that we can monitor our animals, because we try to keep that to a minimum. Uh, and then any project work. So that could be uh, we're getting a new squirrel monkey raceway. So it may be going and measuring cool. it up, going to a meeting with the architects, which is pretty exciting. Uh, and then we, <laughs> like today, we've got a fantastic little busy bee plan. So that's when me and my team will all get together and we're going to do some boring stuff cleaning out a shed. <laughs> uh, but it's just going through everything that we've got. And then the day really gets started. Everyone goes down to their rounds. And so on primates, we've got three rounds. Uh, and then um, we've got additional staff to assist us with those. So it will be checking and feeding the animals, um, exhibit security and um, making sure that they're all healthy and then throughout the day cleaning food prep and everything else but for me as a supervisor and this is kind of why I especially love my job so much it's extremely uh, versatile so I will have different meetings about matchmaking animals um, health meetings with the vets to, mm -hmm. to plan for our best health practices for the animals meeting with my team potentially about a new diet or enrichment or training program for animals. We do a lot of training here. Um, checking up on how everybody's going. Um, Skype calls with somebody that could be in Asia or even Africa um, to discuss um, anything that we've got going on and how we can assist with upskilling uh, and vice versa. I get so much uh, information from them. Mm. So yeah, it's really, and I love problem solving. So working with primates is constantly problem solving. Yeah. So they're crazy intelligent. <laughs> um, and so, and especially when you're working with the gibbons here that are small apes and our great apes, the orangutan, 
it's all about how can we mentally stimulate them yeah. and what have they got going on. They can't talk to us. So we've got a 50-year-old smart orangutan called Puttery and she's got her 10-year-old daughter living with her. Oh. And Puttery has probably the starts of some arthritis. Okay. So it's watching them, seeing how they're moving, talking to the vets about any kind of natural, natural supplements we can put them on. Do we change her diet at all? How's her weight? Is she carrying too much, too little? Um, so all of those intricacies. And I love just going through with my team how we can better practice, but also make sure that we're on top, top of all of those scenarios for our animals. What are some of the ways you can kind of mentally stimulate an animal like a gibbon? What do they like to do? So <laughs> gibbons, they love to go high. So pretty, yeah, no pretty lucky that we've got this crazy tree. Uh, but things that we can do, which we can't see as easily at the moment because they're kind of hidden, is we've got hoists. So that means that we can then assist the animals with feeding up high oh. as well, which is really important. Because obviously in the wild, a large component of their day would be foraging. It would be finding foods like what... We're watching Sunder at the moment, just playing in a palm, mm. um, having a little gnaw on some of the leaves. So it's really important for us to be able to mimic that. So by utilising the hoist systems, we can hoist up different fruits into the trees and then it's a little bit of a surprise for them and they're naturally foraging. So that's something that can keep them mentally stimulated, which is encouraging a species-specific behaviour. Yeah. Also training. So these guys do love to engage with us. Um, I'm anthropomorphic promorphosizing but I think I know given behavior after 18 years and they totally <laughs> yeah. love it <laughs> yeah and um, so being able to train them so that means that when it comes to a health checkup we can probably just simply hand inject them they go to sleep they go to the veterinary department for a health checkup and then they come back down and recover mm. so that means it's a, a much easier process so we invest a lot of time and energy into training our animals so yeah. that um, and that's definitely a component of our role that's changed a lot over the years um, in regards to what we call capture and restraint is being able to have um, those conscious experiences with our animals to be able to um, equip them also with choice uh, and also be able to have a much more stress-free uh, process. So other things that we can do to mentally stimulate, it comes a lot around food, mm. um, so being able to give them those foraging opportunities but also uh, in regards to play behaviour. So you'll see these guys, they just throw themselves around and are having the best time. It's providing different toys and different stimulants um, that they can play with, that they can manipulate, changing their environment. So yeah. if they're on this island, this is their territory, this mm. is their home. So um, we have ropes that we can move around, they're all on large carabiners. So that means that we can change their opportunity of where they travel and where they swing every day if we yeah, want to. Yeah, cool. So that's really, really important. Um, and also, I think with an animal like Owa, uh, he just Look loves having him. a chat with us and he loves watching us like he is now. Yeah. He's been up there the whole time the just whole time. having a look. <laughs> oh, he'd definitely explore if he got out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ask some of our questions that have been submitted from the rest of the Particle team. Awesome. There's about four of us back at the office who were oh, so jealous that we got to have a zoo day. Um, <laughs> they wanted to start with, what has been one of your weirdest animal encounters? Weirdest animal encounter? Was I imagine there's been a few. Oh my gosh, there's been so many. <laughs> uh, was actually in Bolivia. So this is, this is one that we can all experience. Um, was our young tapir. 
So I don't okay. know if everybody out there would know what a tapir is, but definitely Google. Uh, I call it a snorkel pig, so it's got a funny, <laughs> snorkely little nose. <laughs> yeah, um, okay, I do know what they are. That's a yeah. good description. And this one, my, my partner's an ex-zookeeper, so it was quite hilarious. Just came out of nowhere from and where we were staying. And we were scared. You know, yeah. We have a great respect for animals. And this guy just came bounding over, and it turned out he was a hand-raised tapir. Oh. And just the most bizarre thing I've ever experienced. He was just, <laughs> he was so gosh damn, goddamn cute. How um, big are they? They big. I picture them being quite big. Yeah. So the size of like a steer, like a like a young cow. Oh wow. Yeah. Like oh, a, like okay. A, yeah, like a calf. Yeah. Like a okay. Fat calf. <laughs> <laughs> with a snorkel. Yeah. Yeah. With a little snorkel pig nose. Um, and then. I think some other weird experiences have been when you're caught off guard, which can be totally fabulous, but it was probably the first time I ever saw a gibbon in the wild. Um, And it was just so weird, I guess, because it was so, so unexpected. We were out working with Sumatran rhinos, and so a lot of people don't know that there's Asian rhino species. Mm. So there's three of them. And we were out working um, with some Asian rhinos, the Sumatran rhino, uh, and out of nowhere came a Siamang, and he was just dangling above <laughs> us out in the wild. And that, I think that was just so weird because you don't expect these animals to be as inquisitive of us as we are of them. Yeah. And so it's like, this is a wild animal, and he's just totally chill, which was a great sign because it, well, they should, they should be pretty on guard, but it also showed that at least in that habitat where that those animals lived, that they probably didn't have poachers yeah. because they were quite relaxed. That's true. Um, and so, yeah, that was pretty weird. And I I don't know if it's necessarily weird, but trekking Sumatran elephants in the wild. Oh, my goodness. And thinking that we were going to get, thinking that we were going to get stampeded because um, the guys that we were with, thought that the the elephants were coming that we'd just seen and they totally weren't and but we all bolted and um one of the elephant keepers here at the zoo that I was with just went flying past me she was running and she just tripped and went flying and her gumboots went oh, flying no. and oh my god it was so hilarious and they weren't um, coming they totally were oh coming we were perfectly fine <laughs> there were no smarter elephants stampede. oh. yeah, stampeding us I mean I think it's probably fair to run at yeah, the end exactly. <laughs> Out of all the animals at the zoo, yep. which animals do people like the most? Oh, definitely meerkats. Oh. Oh, my gosh. They are popular. We always we always say that we should just put meerkats all around the zoo. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? <laughs> I feel like they'd be really little, naughty. Little pockets of meerkats. Oh, oh they're so super, cute. super cheeky. <laughs> I think, yeah, meerkats, elephants, and especially our, our beautiful Trisha, um, the elephant. So, yeah, she'd definitely be, I think, everyone, especially the Perth community's favourite. Uh, big cats. Tigers and lion. Um, people love the big cats, the penguins. Yeah. Um, penguins are always a massive favourite, as long as well as the saltwater crocodile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they'd definitely be, like, when we go through some of the, the top five animals. Yeah. I'm just going to put orangutans on there just because yeah. I feel like we should. I think they were my favourite when I was a kid. I think I was, like, completely mesmerised by how they kind of looked like us. I yes. think I was like, whoa, they're, like, big and they're, like, moving. Yeah, oh. I think definitely got and excited. And you look at their hands. Yeah, I think that was it. Oh, my goodness. They're yep. just, yeah, same, same. <laughs> and then, conversely... Which animal needs a bit of a rebrand? Which one do you think people don't pay enough attention to? Really good one. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to think a little bit more. Yeah. 
maybe ones I've always thought maybe animals that were like a bad guy in a movie like the hyenas always freaked me out because of Lion King yeah no you no, totally hit the nail on the head so hyena definitely they get such a bad rap and I think because of yeah the Lion King yeah. and they are just if you and it's when we we have some experiences here at the zoo like um the be a keeper where you can pay to be a keeper for half a day whenever we have patrons come on that and they see the keepers and they're scratching the hyena and the hyenas and little you know nuzzling <laughs> in they are absolutely beautiful they are yeah. so misunderstood and then i guess i'd say other ones that could do with a rebrand is it's fascinating how many people are scared of reptiles oh really yeah mm. okay and snakes and i totally understand people's fears but yeah. i think well, maybe that's more one that people can just, you know, learn a little bit more about. Yeah. And I guess I guess it's nice to, in regards to a rebrand, we don't want to make them too too sweet and cuddly. <laughs> no. Yeah, there's definitely dangers that come yeah, with it. Yeah, we need, we need them to still be, um, yeah, kind of respected, especially in the wild. Um, I guess another one for a rebrand may be the Taz Devil. Mm-hmm. Tazzy Devils. They are just crazy smart and have some mad ab- adaptations yeah, um, okay. that are just so cool to learn about. And I think just the plight, so like what they face in the wild is so, is really sad mm. in regards to the tumour disease that they get um, and also just in regard to their habitat. So they're probably one that could get a bit of a rebrand. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I don't know much about them, so it's mm. a good one to get more into. Who would you rather work with, humans or animals? animals although I do I do love humans and I think that's why I've got the best of both worlds in my role at the moment but no I must say yeah animals are animals are the best yeah (laughs) a couple last questions about gibbons and about your work specifically with them do you feel like you really like know them personally Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So one of our white cheat gibbons called Jamae, I've worked with her my whole career wow. and her whole life. Um, I actually got my job because of her. Um, she, her, her mum and her mum just need a little bit of help raising her. And so the core staff had to look after Jamae and her family and I got a job to backfill them. Mm-hmm. And then I got to get involved with Jamae as well. And so... The connection that we've got, and like if I went up there now, she'd just give me a great big hug oh, um, through oh, the that's mesh. So cute. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's beautiful. I've seen her um, help out other young gibbons that that have needed um, to learn some good skills. Uh, I've seen her become a mother uh, three times. Wow. I've seen yeah her get paired with her partner. Um, he came from France, so I got to see the whole process and. Yeah, if I and I, I yeah, again, I, I'm not a crazy person, but I think <laughs> of her. Yeah, she's she's family. Yeah, like she, she's a a beautiful, beautiful gibbon, and she's taught all of us so so much about her species mm. and so much about resilience. So yep. she had a bit of a tough start to life, and she's gone on to be a well-adjusted gibbon and a fantastic mother. Oh. And so, yeah, we can all learn a lot from animals like Jermaine. Yeah. Mm. With the genetic side of things, when you're pairing up different partners of gibbons, 
how does it work? Are you just looking for the most genetically different? Are you looking for similarities in some ways? What is that process like? Yeah, so we look into genetics. So we try to see genetically if they're viable. So we don't want to be putting siblings and cousins and Mm. stuff together. But then something that's really important for us as well is from a welfare perspective. So we... If there's an animal that's at dispersal age and their family are kicking them out and we need to look into an outcome for them to have um, their own species to be able to house with, that's where we kind of look and with a more holistic view. So Mm -hmm. we'd look at the genetics, but that's not always necessarily the number one. So we'd also look into the temperament of the other animal that they may go with, um, what their background is, um, how much they also need to meet a partner. Um, and then we also really think outside the box. So with Owa here, um, he generally wouldn't always, he wouldn't still be in with his sister um, and her partner. And so we thought, no, we've got a lot of experience here at Perth Zoo with managing gibbons. Um, and it's something that my team, I've been doing this for a long time and I mm. think they really encouraged me to think outside the box, which was really good, um, that we can all work together and also challenge each other. Um, and yeah, we gave it a, a go. So we introduced the new male to, to Sunda with her brother with her. Yeah. And it's worked to treat. And that means that Owa, as a hand-raised male, has now seen a normal pair um, get it on together and have a baby together. Yeah. And so he's getting to see that. So that's really important as well. So mm. I think it's, it's not just genetic matchmaking. It's also looking at all everything that has to do with that specific animal so that we're giving them the best outcome and welfare possible. That's so interesting. I always assumed, yeah, genetics is number one, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because they've clearly got a lot of personality. Oh, my gosh, so much. <laughs> and that's, yeah, you do. You have to look into their personality and their pizzazz. Mm. Um, <laughs> some of them may, you may have, and, and it's, with gibbons, the female's generally dominant. So, yeah, okay. and dad um, is on the bottom of the pecking order. That's probably the one area where if we ever have any friction, it's if that male tries to push it too much with the yeah, female. Yeah, okay. So he needs to know she's number one, mate. So yeah. back off. Yeah. And as soon as she knows that, and as soon as he knows it, and we're all on the same page, it's smooth sailing. So that's the main thing with Gibbons that we've got to get through, is that girl feeling like number one, as she should be. Yeah. <laughs> We were hearing their really beautiful calls earlier. Can you tell them apart by their voices? Yes. <laughs> so we've got two groups of white cheek gibbons and yeah, can tell who in the group, individual group is calling and then who between the two groups. So wow. um, what makes it a little bit easier is the female has a specific call. So she okay. starts off the call and then, um, sorry, the male starts the call and then the female comes into the call and then the okay. offspring as well. So Aww. sometimes you can lose the offspring in there, yeah. they blend in, but no, and it's fascinating. So we all usually go and watch, especially when there's young, because we want to see how they're developing their call. And, and also it's really funny, we've got um, one of our boys, Philip, he just turned 47 years old. Whoa! He warms up his vocal cords, <laughs> so you'll hear this, like really quiet and then he reaches the top notes whereas we've got another male called Tao and he just goes smack bang into his call and it sounds so high pitched you can totally tell he's going to have a sore throat afterwards there's no preparation Um, so yeah that's quite funny oh that's so cool Mm. we talked a bit about how it's just it's quite a long road 
to getting here and having a job at a zoo, if there's anyone who's like at the start of it or thinking about it, do you have any advice for that perseverance? Yeah, I definitely just 100% commit to it. Yeah. Be realistic. I get that, you know, when we um, have people that are looking into it, totally understand if you have, you know, if you already have a job and you're doing it on the side trying to, trying to get into this industry. But I can't say enough how much work experience is important. We have so many native animal rescue centres in around Perth that you can volunteer at. Um, so, you know, you don't have to go further afield and we can't at the moment um, to other countries. It's not about oh, going and, and working with some cheetah or lion or, or, or yeah, going to an elephant sanctuary or something like that. We wouldn't necessarily um, look into those kinds of things. What you've got on your doorstep here in WA is amazing. So mm. take advantage of that. There's even turtle hatchling places that you can possibly volunteer at. So get as much experience as you can and also invest into your into your studies. It's not everything having a degree, but if that's your avenue, go for it. Um, there's certificates that you can do and we know if you've got it. Yeah. So if you have that and you know that you've got that burning desire, we will be able to see that. So continue, just continue to persevere and you will get there. That's great advice. <laughs> <laughs> and to finish up with, I don't doubt you have literally so many. You work at a zoo. I would expect you to have so many, but I'd really love a fun fact. So a fun fact is, sorry. You're right. I wrote some of these down. Oh, cool. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if this is necessarily fun, but it's gross. <laughs> So um, a fun fact uh, for me when hand-raising gibbons is because they're so similar, yeah. uh, having to go on baby forums to look into um, different poos. Oh, what? Yeah. So, so similar to us. And it was like, why is this little gibbon baby having this coloured poo? Oh. Totally normal. All good. <laughs> um, something else that is pretty, I, I just find that everyone's always really spun out by is also with the orangutans that we can do pregnancy tests with them. Oh, so they're yeah. human pregnancy tests, contraceptive oh, pill. Oh, my God. Yep, mind-blowing. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> um, another fun fact in regards to the white cheek gibbons is their beautiful colour change. So they are born gold, the same colour as mum. So if we think that from an adaptation point of view, they then blend into oh, yes. mum's hair colour and then at the age of around one and it takes a good year or so they turn to black both mm -hmm. males and females and then um, at sexual maturity for the female she turns back to blonde so almost like a coming of age so that's just a crazy sec what yeah. we call sexual dimorphism yeah so pretty amazing uh another fun fact is that i've lived up in the trees with gibbons what? Um, so that's pretty cool. So I went out to Laos where um, we've got a few different species of gibbon and this was the crested gibbon and they do a beautiful conservation project out there where people can get around by zip lines and live up in treetops. Oh, that's in the incredible. Habitat. Yeah, in the habitat with gibbons. So I think that was a pinnacle for me. Yeah. Was being able to go and experience what it's like to be a gibbon up yeah, a tree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> did you like it? I did. I yeah. really loved it. <laughs> would you trade it in if you could design your house to have oh, the zip yeah. lines? Yeah. Yeah, and Ola would love that for sure. <laughs> oh, and you could live up there with him. I know. Oh, that'd thank be so you. cute. Oh, well, thank you so much, Holly. That was awesome. No worries. My absolute pleasure.
Thank you for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. This episode, as always, was recorded in the beautiful science hub that is Western Australia, and Particle is powered by SciTech.